There we go. 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 11. If I can find it. Should I go? <laughs> you can. <laughs> Let's see here. No oh, this is Second Chronicles. This is yeah, and not Second Corinthians. Yeah, that's, that's in a different part of the Bible. I was like, it looks. I was like, why am I not finding it? Okay, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Second Corinthians five, and I think that's on. And I'll read until six two, and we're starting at verse eleven. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I trust also well known to your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of a sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to him and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, the infallible word has been heard, and now we enter into the fallible time. And so I pray that you would govern over this time by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive the word with meekness which has the power to save the soul. We commit our hearts to you. We turn our eyes toward you. For those who gaze upon the sun shall have eternal life and he will raise them up on the last day. I thank you for your word for it's a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. Be with us as we desire to learn more about you. For you called us to know that you are God. And we pray all of these things through Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, 
One God forever and ever. Amen. Hi, people. Let me make sure that my um, recording is on. Yeah, the last time I recorded my part and then it didn't record and that was just a mess. So, okay, we're in 2 Corinthians and um, I'm doing the exegetical portion. If you haven't been with us, I recognize most of you. But if you haven't been with us, exegesis is we're pulling... We're pulling um, what Paul's meaning is out of the text, and so um, I'm walking through this first section, and we're starting in verse 11, and we'll be stopping at verse 15. Um, that is what I've been instructed to teach you about today. So let's just dive into the Word of God, because I don't have a whole bunch of time. So verse 11 starts, "'Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men.'" Now, I want to point out, first of all, that that word terror there, it might be fear in some of your versions. I'm reading from the New King James because I'm me. But um, the word terror there, a lot of people like to take the word fear in their translations, and they like to kind of reduce it to um, reverential awe for the Lord. And that's not what the word means in the Greek, because there is a Greek word for reverential fear, and Paul doesn't use it here. It's the word where we get phobia from. It's the Greek word phobos, and uh, it's like kind of pee your pants terror of the Lord because he's scary. I think we need to develop um, a well-rounded view of God. So many of us have a flat view of God where we don't allow God to be, I mean, we recognize that human beings are so complex, and then we want to take the infinite God of the universe and make him into a stick figure, and I just don't really understand that. Um, God is pretty terrifying. The Bible talks about how if uh, God were to ever do you wrong, there is nobody who can bring him into court. Um, Deuteronomy 32 says, uh, Behold, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God with me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, and I heal, and there's nobody who can deliver from my hand. And so I think we need to recognize, especially in light of what Paul is talking about in the previous section, he talks about the judgment of the Lord at the resurrection. Uh, so I think it's very important to take note that even Christ um, is quite fearsome to deal with. Going on, verse 12, well, I'll finish verse 11. Uh, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I trust, uh, and I also trust, are well known in your consciences. Um, that word, but, uh, it might be in some of your versions, it might not be. Um, it's not as stark a contrast in the actual language. It's more, um, we're being persuaded, we're persuading men because of the fear of God, and we're also, it's a parallel more than a contrast, we're also persuading men because he says we're manifest to God and we're manifest to your consciences. And what he's saying is, is that based upon the contrast that he's going to make with these super apostles who, um, as we've seen throughout the epistle, he says that they are all about the external, they're all about show. And he says, no, my motivation for evangelism, my motivation for my ministry, which is the context that the main portion of 2 Corinthians is about, um, he's saying that my motivation is inward. It's not about externalism. It's not about things that are flashy. It's not about... um, impressing you. It's the fear of God on the inside motivating me, and I'm not trying to prove myself to you, but I manifest to God, because God knows all things. So he's saying, God knows my heart. God knows my motivations. He knows that I'm not two-faced. Uh, it's that sincerity that he talks about in, verse, in chapter 1. And then he also says that we are manifest to your consciences. And I think what he's banking on, he says that he, he's trusting the Corinthians to... Um, 
to look back at all the fruit that he's produced in his ministry and recognize that um, his motive was pure, that he never did things to extort from them. He never did things to be dishonest. And so he's trusting that his ministry has had weight on them. Moving on, it says, For we do not commend ourselves to you again. I'll read verse thir- uh, 12 and 13. Uh, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For we, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of a sound mind, it is for you. This section is uh, really interesting because I don't remember if you... I think Drew was teaching this section, but he was talking about how... Um, the super apostles, they call themselves, uh, were giving these letters of recommendation for other churches, and they were giving their wonderful long resumes, and they were uh, basically saying, oh, look, I'm so wonderful, and look at all of my credentials, and you should trust me, because I have all of this knowledge. And Paul has already given the commendation that it's the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life that is the actual letter of recommendation. And so he says, I'm not trying to give you my pedigree again. I trust that you already recognize the work of the Spirit in your life is the pedigree. Um, but the reason why I'm giving you, I'm repeating this, and I'm talking about my motivations, is that I love um, what I found in the commentary. It said that the word opportunity is like a, it's a military word that's like a, like a, if a person captures a certain base and they have a strategic place to kind of spring on the enemy from somewhere else, um, he's saying that the reason why he's talking about their motivation is if one of these people who are in this dissenting party from Paul um, comes and says, uh, well, how do you think about Paul? I just like Brother Cleopas better than Paul because he just, he just so fancy. And do you see the suit that he was wearing the other day? And Paul, when he came, he was just in rag. And then the other person can say, no, you know, I just trust that after Paul's long ministry here, all the fruit that he's borne in his life, um, the, the purity of the gospel that he's preached, I just feel like uh, that Paul's ministry is pretty solid and you can have a blessed day with all of that. That's what basically Paul is saying. You can, uh, he's giving them ammunition to defend the reason why they're in support of Paul, not necessarily trying to justify or get, uh, make them proud of him. He already trusts that he is proud of them. And then this next section uh, that talks about if he's beside himself, it sounds kind of weird um, on the onset, uh, because it sounds like what he's saying is, well, if I'm crazy and deranged, I'm crazy and deranged for God. And that's not necessarily what Paul's saying. Um, what he's referring to, I think, um, if you remember, I don't, uh, a lot of you are new, so you wouldn't have been here uh, for our First Corinthians series. But First Corinthians deals with a lot of the gifts of the Spirit. Yeah! First Corinthians deals with a lot of the gifts of the Spirit. And if you knew um, about... Uh, ancient Greek culture, they also had things that were similar to what we would call speaking in tongues or glossolalia, and that's how people would show how spiritual they are. So uh, you would have priests and more religious people, and they would go fall into trances, and they would speak in tongues, and that was their kind of pedigree of how spiritual they were. And uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, because it seems like this competition between gifts is being really disruptive in the church, Um, He says, actually, when someone speaks in a tongue, that's a great thing, but they're actually not doing, they're not communicating with anybody that's like, well, they are communicating with someone that's in the room. They're not communicating with human beings. They're not, um, they're not 
edifying is the word he uses. You're not edifying your brother. You're edifying yourself and you're speaking to God. And if you speak in the understanding, or if you use prophecy, if you teach with regular language, then you are uh, edifying your brother. And he says, I speak in more tongues than all of you. I'm really spiritual. But the evidence of his spirituality is not so much that he speaks in tongues, but it's that he cares about the spiritual benefit and well-being of other people. Um, he, he's not like Benny Hinn who has those huge crusades and wants to throw his jacket around and lay people out. He's saying, my concern is about your soul. It's not about you being um, just taken away with who I am because of all my flashy gifts. He could be flashy with his gifts. I mean, Paul um, preached so long one time that someone fell asleep, fell out of a window, died, and he prayed him back. So Paul can do <laughs> Paul can do. Um, powerful miracles. He's done them before, but if the miracle is drawing attention to him, he doesn't want that. We talked about last week how the whole purpose of Paul's ministry, being a, an earthen vessel, is so that we really know that the power belongs to God and not to us. And it's also a kind of a slight and a jab against his uh, detractors because, um, you know, they're saying, well, Paul, you don't speak in a whole lot of tongues, and, and we speak in a whole lot of tongues, and you get beat up all the time, and we just have a great life, and we're just really spiritual. And he's saying, actually, these people seem to have more interest in their own self-aggrandizement than they have in your spiritual well-being. Um, and so this next section is um, where I will end, and it's going to take a little while because it's an involved sentence. It's a this verses 14 and 15 are one sentence. And so I want to kind of break that down. That's why I have it written on the board. It says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for those who died for them and rose again. Now, you probably never knew that this was a discussion or a debate. But there is a debate that is about what we call the extent of the atonement. Very powerful. It's basically the question, for whom did Christ die? And there are four different, uh, well, I'm sure there are more than four because people can make up a lot of stuff. But um, there are kind of four different views about the extent of the atonement. The first is what we call the universal atonement, which is probably what most people in this room have. Um, the universal atonement is that Christ died for every person in the world without distinction, but with the exception that you have faith and repentance in him. And so that is what we call universal atonement. Um, then we have universalistic atonement, which is that Christ died for everyone in the whole world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight, <laughs> Jesus loves the little children of the world, but uh, it is not only without distinction, but it is without exception. So it doesn't matter if you repent, doesn't matter if you have faith, you're saved, because Jesus' um, death uh, accomplished that salvation regardless of who you are and where you are. And then we have what we call particular or effectual atonement, which is that Christ died so as to obtain salvation for, well, fancy word, not really that fancy, but um, for the elect, for his people whom he chose before the foundation of the world. And then you have what we call the hyper-Calvinistic view, which is that Christ died for only his elect, so it is um, with distinction, just like 
the reformed view, the particular view, um, but it is without exception, so it doesn't matter whether or not you repent and have faith, because Christ died for his elect, you're saved. Um, one of these perspectives perspectives, really likes verse 14, and I'm sure you can guess which one it is, um, the universalist view, and it's a very, on the surface level, a very convincing argument, because when he says, we have concluded that one died for all, therefore all died, um, my version, I was reading a, a, a commentary and it said that the King James unfortunately renders the Greek word that's underlying it uh, as then, and it is unfortunate because it's not then. The word there is not um, temporal, it's consequential. So it's not that Christ died, then everybody else died after him. It's Christ died, and because he died for all, the all for whom he died, died. So his death... <laughs> His death brought about the death of all people. And so if we just isolate that one portion, it would seem that, that uh, Paul is saying that in the death of Christ, everyone without distinction and without exception uh, died with Christ. And that uh, we'll, we'll go into what that means to die here in a bit. Um, but let's see. I don't want to just tell you that universalism isn't true, because it's not. But I don't want to... <laughs> I don't want to poison the well and, uh, and uh, make you already have presuppositions about. So let's look at the text and see um, why I personally don't believe that universalism uh, is not taught in this text. Um, first of all, there's a wonderful rule that we need to recognize in every language, and that's that the word all means all, all the time, unless all is delimited by some other grammatical construct. So, for example, if I say, honey, you can have all the cookies, you can have all the cookies, right? But if I say, honey, you can have all the cookies that I baked for you, if I made you three cookies, you only get three cookies. Because if you take more than three cookies, I might hurt you. Because that means the rest of the cookies are for me, and you don't mess with my cookies. Well, I just, it just got real there. I had flashback, Lord. Um... <laughs> but so, so you have uh, you have all, and all does have um, have an overarching, exhaustive meaning, unless it's delimited. And I believe that uh, the term all is delimited in three ways in this text. And then I will be done. First of all, the term all in verse fourteen is delimited by the effect of the all. So it's Christ died for all, therefore all died. And so what he's saying is that because Christ died and his intention was to die for all, the all for whom he died, died, right? And so um, the death that Paul is talking about there is not just like death, like physical death, like um, expiration. What he's talking about is um, death to self, death to sin, and death to the world. And I know, I, I'm, I'm assuming we all know what those things mean. I don't have a lot of time to explain. So I'm just going to assume that you people know what that means. Um, and so that means that his death accomplishes bringing about in the people for whom he died death to sin, the world, and the flesh. So that means that if you are not dying to sin, the world, and the flesh, you're not a part of this all that Paul is talking about, which is a good caveat for us, because if you're in here 
And there might be some of you, I know most of you are just godly people, I don't know all of you though, if you are not dying to sin, to the flesh, and to the world on a constant basis, you might want to have a talk with Jesus. And that's serious. Like, like you really might want to have a talk with Jesus. And maybe somebody in this room, and maybe me, and maybe when Scott and Drew get back, or Rachel get back, you might want to talk to them, but that's very important that you do that. Um, secondly, it's delimited by the purpose for which um, the atonement was put forth. So the next clause says, let me find it in my Bible. It says, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves. Now, that phrase, that, the, well, it's not a phrase, it's a word. The word that is the word haughty in Greek, and it's a purpose clause. So it's saying that the purpose, oh, I have this written on the board. Perfect. That's why I did this. Okay. See, I was prepared. Praise God. Okay. So this word, that, oh, no. Oh. Oh. Okay, so the word that is creating a purpose clause, and because of this, if you wanted to have this all here to be um, every single individual in the world, you would either have a contradiction or you would have a big difficulty, because that would be saying that Christ died for every single individual in the world, um, that those who live, there we are, that those who live... Now, that's not just saying those people who are alive. Um, he's comparing those who live from a phrase that comes up in the Corinthian corpus a lot. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, um, The gospel is foolishness to them that are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, and then in another place, in 2 Corinthians, maybe one or two, it's in two, I think. It's in the Bible. Um, it says that, the gospel is an aroma. It's a savor of death to death to them who are perishing. And there's another verse in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, and then there's a verse in uh, 1 Thessalonians that talks about them who are perishing. That is a specific group of people who are outside of the pale of saving grace. And so um, what he is comparing, those who live, those are, that's contrasting those that are perishing. And so I think we can all conclude from that. Now, he's talking about a specific group of people, those who live. So, it would be foolish for Paul to say that he died for all if he's talking about, if he died, the purpose for which he died was to cause those who live to live for him. Does that make sense? Or am I just talking? Because I talk sometimes. Okay, so that's the second delimitation. The third is he clarifies by, well, by way of explanation at the very end when he says, I'll find it in my Bible. It says, but uh, for him who died, it says that they should no longer live for themselves, but for him uh, who died for them and rose again. And so that's the, the impetus that I want to point out is uh, rose for their sake there. And that, Paul is creating a mirror between the first part of the sentence, he died for all, and he died for the sake of them, and the them is referring back to those who live. And so, and I think I, I should clarify, Paul's intention when he was writing this sentence wasn't, okay, he died for all, and 
I don't want the Corinthians to think that I'm talking about like all exhaustively without exception, so I'm going to make a purpose clause, and that clause is going to, that, that's not what Paul was thinking. He was writing, and as he's writing out his line of thought, he begins to clarify what he says as a byproduct of his line of thought, if that makes sense. So I don't want you to think that Paul was just calculating like, oh, I don't want them to be confused, so let me do all of this grammatical rhetoric to make them understand. That's not what Paul was doing. Um, and I don't want you to think that. So, but he is therefore limiting the scope um, of the all here so that it is all of those who live. Um, and so a lot of the commentaries that I read that are reformed, uh, I have to warn you against the dreadful thing of, called eisegesis because a lot of people who are reformed are Calvinist. Eisegesis means to punch something into the text uh, that doesn't exist there. Um, there are a lot of people who are Calvinists who says, well, since it's those who live, that must mean the elect, and that's not what those who live means. Those who live just means those who live. It takes the rest of the Pauline corpus to uh, get the full breadth of what Paul is talking about. And so even if this seemed to, and it doesn't, uh, teach universalism, is what we call it, there we go, um, we have the rest of the New Testament. And... I think this is a wonderful example of how you don't just take all of your theology and put its weight on one verse in the Bible when we have a, an entire Bible. That's silly when we have 66 books of the Bible and you want to put all of your theology into one verse. That doesn't make sense to me. But um, that's all I have, and we are going to take a break. I'm sure you need it because I'm talking about 2,000 miles per hour. And um, then the Reverend Moss will speak to us from the screen. Take a break. Praise God. Good work, sir. Thank you. Woo! Hey guys, Rachel Vincent here. Drew was gone this particular Thursday, but we recorded his session. So the link to that is in the show notes. You can click on it and go watch it. Hope you enjoy.